Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good night to all those who end up joining me in these dark woods for this The Great Journey podcast. And for tonight, I am your druid, Luke Keish, to help you guide you to the other world and meet the fey beings and learn of the Celtic festival of Samhain. So grab your jack-o'-lanterns and light them as we enter the she, the portal between our realms. The Celtic festival of Samhain is practiced every year, and it is pronounced either Sowin or Samhain, and it is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, and is the first of the great fire festivals. This festival was a way to focus on and honor the dead and the mythological beliefs held at the time. This was a time to be respectful to people and make peace to celebrate Samhain, but you still need to be wary of the Fey and the she, which is spelled S-I-D-H, and is a common pronunciation for most Fey, but I will try to use a more specific term for each Fey creature instead of just using she, and more of which we will cover going forward with the Celtic beliefs and so forward. But before we depart, we must pay the Undertaker in this week's Undertaker's fee. And for this week's fee, it will be, do you know what grows when you plant a pumpkin spice latte and water it with alcohol? A sorority house will grow. And then for today's trail, the campfires that we will be lighting on our way will consist of a brief overview of Samhain, and then we will go into how Samhain was celebrated and why it was celebrated. And then we will go into the pieces that make up Samhain, and then we will talk about what happened to that festivity going forward through history. And then we will talk about and take a look at all the mythology focused around Samhain and some of the beliefs that formed the practices that Celts did on this uh, festivities. And then we will wrap it up with my opinions and look at on Samhain. And then we will end with the mythological minute of this week. So tonight's first campfire will go over a brief overview of the history of the archaeology pertaining to Samhain and a little bit of the basics of Samhain itself. 
and evidence shows that it was practiced before the Celts had even arrived in Ireland. And some of the excavations done by previous teams and by Dr. Stephen Davids at the University College of Dublin. Uh, he did his excavation in 2014 on the Hill of Ward and Hill of Terra. And they discovered that this site was constructed over three phases. The first was in the Bronze Era around 1200 BCE. The second was done around 500 BCE. And then the third was done during the Medieval Period around 400 CE. And then they have other ancient sites around there like Newgrange and the Mound of Hostages that seem to date back around 5,000 years ago. And then some evidence show that particularly uh, practices of Sawin had been done on these mounds previous to the Celts coming over. Uh, a little note about the archaeology is that the practice seems to have gone back before the Celts had arrived and some of the ties go closely with how the Celts practice their Samhain festivals and then some of the information that we have today itself that we've found from archaeology is different from some of the translations and monks uh, written records that they had done when they arrived in Ireland um, and some of that information uh, was done when the Roman Empire uh, the, of the Catholic Church came over and basically started translating a lot of the mythology and customs that the Celts did practice in there and some of it changed because of they didn't know the language and then some of the other things changed because of the Christian religion uh, trying to orient it more towards their viewpoints in uh, the world scheme uh, but we'll hopefully go into more detail on that in a little bit and some of the other correlations with our modern Halloween celebrations which some scholars tie uh, Samhain to the origin of our Halloween. So we will take a deep look at that and then some of the other ancient Celt practices and, like I said, some of the mythology and history that still influence this festival and our modern Halloween today. So Samhain was practiced uh, by people in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, and mainly of the Celtic cultures. Uh, Samhain is also the modern Irish uh, word for the uh, month of November. Um, this is also considered the Celtic New Year's and was out of the four fire festivals that they had for the seasons, uh, Samhain was considered one of the most important. And these fire festivals, like I said, they marked the change of the seasons and Samhain was the change from the harvest season to the winter season. And in terms of the for the Celts, this marked the end of what they called the bright season, or the bright uh, bright side of the year, and was the start of the dark side of the year. And these terms were basically used to uh, because of the length of the days. Um, during the bright side, you usually had longer days, and those would typically be spring, summer, and then the darker side would be shorter days of the year, and that would be the winter months and typically during December, winter, and that time of year. Uh, Samhain was practiced uh, halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice, which is the sunset of October 31st to the uh, sunset of November 1st. Uh, this time marked the end of the harvest season, like mentioned, and all the uh, crops and livestock that were left over and not going to be stored away for the winter were given over for this festival and feast, which we will go into more detail a little bit later. Um, there's also a 
a folklore about uh, the crops that are left out that aren't harvested by this time of year, that they will be spoiled by the fae. Um, and with uh, the creatures or the fae mentioned earlier with Samhain, I won't go into much detail in them when we go over the details of Samhain, but that will be towards the end of the segment. I will go into more detail on the different fae creatures and that kind of stuff. For now, I'll probably just maybe mention their name and maybe something to tie with them, and then we'll move on real quick. But don't worry, that we'll come right back to it towards the end. Um, and with this changing of the seasons, um, the Celts uh, took this time to honor the dead and those of the other world, uh, that pertaining with their mythology beliefs and other fae. Uh, traditions and other customs that they had um, not only this festival but it overall the Celts had a huge way to honor the dead and they would build these great she's which is a word I used in the intro uh, s-i-d-h and they were these huge mounds constructed kind of like tombs uh, and there are records that uh, 250 bodies to 500 bodies are buried underneath of them. Um, and the term she, like I'm pronouncing it as S-H-E-E, and that's how the Irish, per like that, that's how they say it's for pronunciation. So I will use that referring more towards the fey creatures because they also are given that name a lot of the times because they dwell in these after uh, an event we will talk about later. But for the t most part, I will refer to these places as tombs, as the locations or mounds or hills or something by their given names instead of uh, the she. Like I said, again, that's a term that's interchangeable with the fey later on, as we'll see. Um... And a lot of these tombs, I mentioned just a second ago that they are called hills, and that's because they look like hills, and they could even built, be built into the hills or built to resemble surrounding hills to kind of have them blend in and hide. Um, and these tombs, as stated before, they were uh, neo from Neolithic times, basically over 5,000 years old, um, and they were built by a different culture than the Celts that we don't really have much information on, but we do know that the tombs were built onto after them by the Celts, and they used them as a main uh, celebration spot, and Samhain uses them a lot in their mythology during this time of year with the fake creatures. And I think that will end our first campfire with a little brief overview of Samhain, and we will get into our next part. Now for our next campfire, and this will go into the parts that make up the Samhain festivities. Um, and it had three parts to it. Uh, the Ferris of Terra, which is spelled F-E-I-S of Terra, T-A-R-A. And then Sawin Day. And then you had the Feast of the Dead. So the Ferris of Terra was, a, was three days before and three days after Sawin. And... Basically, it was for celebration, and most of the Celts or main clans would come to a place called the Hill of Terra, which is the ceremonial area for the coronation of the Irish kings at the time. Um, and at this six-day time, all feuds were set aside uh, for the honoring of the dead, and all petty things were basically put aside for these ceremonies to practice what needs to be done 
certain laws were proclaimed here as well as in most recounts was in the first three days and in the last three days was mainly entertainment, fighting tournaments, contests, more merriment, celebrations, uh, more um, rituals to pay respect for the dead, uh, various other things. Other accounts, it was just like a huge festival that happened all at once, uh, not really any order to it. They just kind of partied for about six days and took reverence for the dead and just got together with other people from long-distance clans. Then, on October 31st, we had the Feast of the Dead, which would bring together families and clans to come together and have a big feast. And this is where all the extra harvest crops and animal products that weren't going to be consumed uh, in the winter and aren't going to be going towards a certain part of the festival later on uh, would be usually fed on here to basically make up the feast and have all the extra food not go to waste. Um, Also during these dinners, uh, it could range from huge banquet halls to just little family size matters, but no matter the size, a special plate would be set out for any uh, relatives or any members of the clan that had passed so they could return from the uh, dead and take a seat at the table and have dinner with these people. And one of the reasons for this is because in the Celtic belief, we had they had two worlds. One was our realm, and then the other was the other realm. And their belief was on this day and certain other festival days that had certain importance to the cycle of this year, uh, the veil between this world and our world would be the thinnest, letting passage between them happen and the dead would be able to return certain fey creatures as we'll go into later would be able to also walk the earth and this was just basically a way to honor the dead i think just having a place marker there so you don't forget about them and it ties into a couple other stories later on and also at the end of this feast any leftover food that would would be collected and it would be left out for a fey creature called the puka uh, spelled P-O-O-K-A-S and these were fey creatures who were very active on Samhain particularly and not something you wanted to run across and we'll get into them a little bit later. And now for the third part and main part of the Samhain festivities. Like said earlier, this is what they called Samhain itself. It was the Great Fire Festival lighting. And it was practiced on the Hill of Ward, or, forgive my pronunciation for this, Irish word, Tathaka, or Talthea. Very hard to pronounce. And then other hills, but this one was a very important site for this particular Samhain festival. Other hills had other importances during other fire festivals, but this one particularly had significance for it. Um, since this hill was named after a power, powerful druidess who died giving birth to triplets and was the daughter of a mythological uh, Celtic figure of Mugruth, which was a druid, uh, very powerful apparently. I'd say if, if you know the legends of Merlin, think they're probably equatable. Um, and then during this fire, fire festival, the druids 
which were the Celtic priests, used the thinning of the veil to make prophecies and also guide their communities in certain decisions and rulings. The Druids would also conduct other rituals and rites during this time because they believed with the thinning of the veil their power of spirituality or mysticness would be amplified or whatever they try to use for prophecy and all the divination stuff would be amplified on this night because of the certain celestial bodies involved and their mythology beliefs and then during when the people around the community and clans would extinguish all their fires on October 31st and during the day crops and animals not used in the feast mentioned earlier or being stored were brought to these huge bonfires then they were sacrificed to the gods of the Celtic mythology for um, some records state that uh, animals were alive when the bonfires were started some say that they were killed and only the bones were put in uh, some others say that the animals uh, skins were just put in or just the meat on some occasions but the crops were always involved in the stories as well and then before the lighting of the bonfires the druids would don costumes and masks to ward off and hide from fae and evil mischievous little creatures and other Celts would just simply wear a mask if they went out uh, most would try to not go out past dawn I mean, past dusk uh, and then they also had a custom of carrying around lanterns made from gourds during the time so they could help guide back any uh, dead relatives that they wanted to see and then these fires were also a way to uh, keep the Fae at bay since the Fae did not like fires or at least certain Fae that were out during this uh, festival did not like fire. But going back to the costumes that the Druids would wear, they were normally made from animal hides and were in the form of cloaks and masks that were made from animal pelts as well. And the Druid priests were usually the only ones that would put horns and other such attachments like branches onto their masks to more hide them from the fae because the fae if they saw them in these weird appearances would mistake them for other fae creatures and leave them alone and then also these uh fires signaled the start of the feast of the dead and the bonfires would help guide the dead there like I said with the lanterns too that people would carry from the bonfires back to their abodes to replenish their fireplaces at their own houses like I said earlier that they had it extinguished for the lighting of these bonfires because they practice it as a renewal to everything and an honoring of the dead to bring them back to their houses for the feast and then also a little note about the bonfire at the hill of wards it is stated that it could be visible from the hill of terror which was mentioned earlier and the hill of terror from the hill of wards i looked up was at least 25 miles west so it's definitely a decent distance so that's a huge bonfire to have been made and again like you wouldn't have buildings cities between them but you would still have trees forestation a bunch of other stuff in your way but that just seems like a huge bonfire so now if you would please i would like to read a quote from 17th century irish historian jeffrey keating which he wrote this in the history of ireland that all fires were to be extinguished at the start of the Samhain festival. The Druids, ancient Celtic priests, would light a new bonfire, into which the bones of the animal sacrifices would be tossed. This bone fire gives us our modern word for 
bonfire. From this fire, others would light their torches and carry the fire home to relight their own hearths. Besides a couple different alterations or different alternative ways that they did stuff or practices or rituals, these this is about all we know about the Sawan Festival. And this is recovered from fragmented accounts or clay tablets and this is what we firmly understand that that happened during these festivals. Um, the importance for the spiritual reasons, uh, dealing with grief and the loss uh, to enjoy the people that are still around and a lot of the festivals uh, symbolic meaning is tied to their mythology that the Celts believed and practiced not just during this time of year but all year round uh, but before I get to the other stuff associated with the mythology with Samhain I want to go over kind of what happened with it and that will bring us to our next campfire so the next campfire we will get into is what happened to the Samhain festival over history. First we will look at the 1st century CE when the Roman Empire, pre-Catholic Empire, conquered most of the Celtic territories in England, Ireland, and Wales. With the coming of the Roman Empire meant change. Like all other providences controlled by the Romans, they adopted and tried to bring all the customs of the conquered territories into their own. But they didn't completely take away all current customs held by the people in the lands. They just tried to meld them with the Romans set customs to bring inclusivity and the people that they ruled more together with them and less fear to have them revolt and because of their customs and traditions and beliefs being taken away. With this, they had two festivals during the time of Samhain, which blended with the festival and was the first steps towards our modern Halloween celebrations. First of the two festivals that the Romans had, which was similar to Samhain, was Fernalia, which is spelled F-R-A-L-I-A, and it fell in late October and was to honor the dead. And most Romans basically practice it by visiting graveyards and pay respect. Um, then the second festival was the day of Pomonia. And this was to honor the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The Pomonia Day has also had accounts depicting apple bombing, bobbing games, uh, similar to what we have, uh, and was probably the inspiration towards the modern apple bobbing games and this transition and melding uh, just happened to start in the first century CE um, and it was specifically uh, 43 AD is when the custom started to meld together when you started seeing Celts practice some of these customs along with the Samhain festival uh, but really didn't fully kind of blend in and meld until 400 years later. And you could still see forms of the Samhain festival still being practiced during that time too. And then we get into when the Roman Empire rears its head again, but in the form of the Catholic Church. So in 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV, decided to start a celebration to honor all saints and martyrs of the Christian faith. 
and an attempt to move all the tradition of Samhain to this new day of All Saints Day, which was first set as May 13th, but the Celts still celebrated in November uh, per their calendar and customs. So in the early 9th century, uh, Pope Gregory III decided to move All Saints Day to November 1st and add a day of All Souls Day to honor the dead. And All Souls Day was an attempt to supplant any customs that weren't absorbed by All Saints Day. And All Souls Day was celebrated similarly like Samhain with bonfires, parades, dressing up as saints, angels, devils. And All Saints Day was also called All Hallows Day. And then it became later on All Hallows Eve. Uh, when it started to gain popularity in the 14th century. So that'll bring us to the Middle Ages. And in this time frame, the Fire Festival was still celebrated, but in a more revised version in Ireland and some of the more English territories. Uh, the bon bonfires were known as Sawagis or Saganese. And these bonfires were more smaller and more focused towards communities and small groups of towns, villages. And it was mainly a way to protect from the fey folk, uh, witches that might be out that propped up into their culture in this time. Um, and the tradition of carving uh, lanterns out of gourds still continued, but now... Uh, gained a new form which started to form what we see as jack-o'-lanterns today and that was because of the stingy jack legends that kind of started to come around in the middle ages and they started carving faces into their gourds instead of just cavities to make them lanterns like they did with the Samhain festivals and like I said this would be the start of what we see as jack-o'-lanterns um, and the gourds were used up until immigrants came here from Ireland and they saw pumpkins that were more abundant here in America so they ended up using those and then the tradition kind of just blew up here with pumpkins being like a symbol of Halloween and it really all just started from the gourd tradition that the Irish brought over to us during the huge immigration of the Irish in America's history and then the last thing that was still to change with Samhain uh, was the name. And that didn't come until a poet in the 18th century, which changed the name of All Hallows' Eve, basically to Halloween. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a while, but he was the one that was credited or is credited with it, uh, basically coming up with the name of Halloween. And he was an 18th century poet uh, by the name of Robert Burns. And he was of Scottish descent, and he wrote a poem titled Halloween. Um, and he, and it was basically about All Hallows Eve. And he was remarked to, uh, after he came out with the poem, on the name that he used for it. Um, and he said it was a portmanteau of the words hollow, which originally meant saints. And then he decided to mix in 
the Ween, which was an alternate version to Eve to the end instead of the beginning because it didn't look proper and it just kind of fit towards the end of it. So, and like I said, he's accredited for the name of Halloween, though it didn't really take on prominence till probably about the 19th century. Um, but, and that's about the last version or thing of Samhain that changed from when it was practiced by the Celts to modern day times. And as you can see, like, there's details and influences from that ancient festival to the Halloween that we practice today. It's just the details kind of got focused somewhere different and some of the customs changed to more lighter things. But now let's talk about the mythology uh, that surrounds the Samhain festival and kind of give you more details on why they practice what they did. So the next campfire we will get into is the mythology surrounding Samhain. And a quick note before we begin the mythology, Dagond, or Dagdad, is one of the Celtic gods of life and death, and he is the patriarch god, basically like the Zeus character of Celtic mythology, and he is featured prominently in a lot of the Samhain festivities since this time was a representation of death, but... Like I said, he is also the representation of life, so he also gets a lot of prominence in their spring festival, and his name's brought up a lot more in that. You just kind of see his influence more towards the Samhain time in personification lesser than his name. But the first thing that needs to be explained is with the uh, mythology belief of the Celts and their world. So our realm where we live, work, and do all our kind of stuff, and then they have another world, which is kind of similar to the underworld, but isn't like the Greek version, Christianity, or any other mythologies where you had the underworld or other world was a physical place or a specific place that was specified to be like in the sky, underground, anything like that. Uh, the Celts believed that this world and that world existed in tandem, kind of like a, a luminarity concept, like uh, dusk and dawn separate day and night, uh, the shoreline separating earth and water, um, and Samhain and other dates like this created a special space that would let you cross between these worlds and create one of these liminal spaces that is a huge concept in their mythology and in a lot of their stories pertaining to this having a duality or a being in between a certain thing and with that their worlds also have these things called she in them like like said earlier they use that term for the fey and for these tombs that they have and they mainly use it as like a portal or a doorway between the two realms. And a lot of people use the name to refer to under the mounds and stuff. But it's really just a very literal term of the translation instead of what the meaning behind it was. And it was more towards like a portal to this other world. Which like I said, it happened in tandem with us just on a different plane or reality basically. And then the second thing we need to talk about are the Fae, which are the mythical creatures that are in 
uh, the Celtic mythology pantheons and are kind of separate from the gods, but at the same time interact and influence and are considered almost the same way as those gods. And they're called the Truididonin, or the people of the goddess Danu. And these were a supernatural beings, basically, and it was a race of humanoid forms that lived on the Ireland or England basically island and they were there before the Celts or anybody had arrived in that land and in something that's called the book of invasions the Milanesian or Milanian people uh, the ancestors of the Irish people they defeated the Truididonin and forced them into this other world and like I said earlier, they used the term she for it, but that's just what they transported them through. And these tombs could also act kind of funny because it says specifically that you needed specific days, times, dates to transverse in between them. And then other times these are like homes or given locations for specific Truer Dodonin members or fey creatures would specifically inhabit specific mounds throughout Ireland and England. Um, and some of the other terms or things it used with the fey is something that they refer to a lot as the ones that stayed. And I don't know really, there wasn't much clarity on what that referenced to. It just meant probably a couple fey creatures or specific types that didn't go to the other world but kind of was able to hide in our world and they took on the name Diania she or Diana she you can pronounce it either way and then the true Dodonin are split into subcategories and these are basically because of their names are kind of confusing and overarching name for Faye and one of the things that is also weird with some of the subcategories of Truidonin is something, and again, it says the pronunciation is she, but it's spelled A-O-S space S-I with an accent on it. So the pronunciation gets a little confusing when you have to say all these things. So a lot of the times I think that they kind of use these things was more in the future of the Celtic and Irish cultures, they use the term for fae as being the good neighbor, the fae folk, uh, the fair folk, uh, the folk, the gentry, the lordly ones, the good people. And that was basically because the fae kind of had this custom or belief within themselves that names held a specific power or granted a specific power over yourself if you're if you give it out or somebody can use your name and that might be one of the reasons why you see this overarching thing where a fae is just named a bunch of different things but written down differently and the first fae I want to discuss is one that I mentioned a little bit earlier with the uh, Feast of the Dead which is the Puka um, and these were among some of the most feared fae creatures uh, and they were commonly known to be shapeshifters. The records show that they have been seen as horses, dogs, rabbits, goats, even goblins, sometimes old beggars, 
but traditionally they are seen as dark, sleek horses with a flowing mane and luminescent golden eyes. Um, they are known to cause mischief, havoc, kind of like any other creature of the night. Um, but they also have the ability to copy or mimic human speech, which gives it more of a terrifying thing because it'll entice humans to want to ride on it. And if anybody's familiar with Koshi the Deathless of Russian folklore, there's a horse that if you get on it, it'll basically jump up way up high in the sky and then just down to the ground with a lot of force. And he'll keep doing this until the person riding it is no longer alive. And that's basically what this horse does. But it'll also just run havocly all around the place. And it just gives you a death ride, basically, if it gets you ensnared in its charm. Uh, and the only person that it's said to have lived from one of the rides is Legendary High King of Ireland. And anybody else who tried to ride it basically died. Um, and the word for this fey creature comes from an old Irish word, which means goblin. And like mentioned earlier, they would uh, set out, the Irish or Celtic people would set out food for them after the Feast of the Dead to appease them. Uh, so they didn't come in and make mischief, basically, and keep them happy from causing any kind of thing from happening to them. Then the next creature you might encounter on Sawin would be the Dulahan. And this fey creature was considered a death omen for anybody who's seen it. And it's commonly known as the headless horseman or woman uh, riding a flame-eyed horse. Uh, sometimes seeming to hold their own head, but not all the time. And, and some legends say that this fey had been beheaded by a fellow fey and is cursed to endlessly search for his lost head. Um, and this fey creature is also some of the influence for the classic uh, Headless Horseman tales that are told on Halloween and some of the Ichabod Crane uh, Disney uh, stories. Uh, the Headless Horseman's mythology comes a little bit from the Dulahan since he carries a pumpkin in his head instead of his real head and that's just a representation of his lost head and him in the search for it. And... This is a lesser fey of the Dulahan, kinda. Because uh, it's considered a subcategory of the Dulahan, and in some accounts, it's just considered very similar to it. But it comes out on uh, Sawin particularly, and is the Lady Guan, which is spelled G W Y N. And she was another headless woman, uh, dressed in a long white dress and accompanied by a very angry black pig, sometimes as big as a bear and sometimes as little as like a little teacup pig. But in either one form, it was said to be very dangerous and extremely hostile to anybody that sees it. And if you saw her and her pig out at night on Samhain, she would basically chase you down and rip you to pieces and, and her pig would eat you up. So basically terrifying at night on Samhain. And it's like that for all the fake creatures. The one in particular before gives you a death ride. These two death omens, one will eat you alive. 
so some terrifying stuff on Sawin, and you can see that kind of influence going to some of the modern horror stories told today and some of the classic horror monster movies with fear being involved. And the last fae I want to talk about are some of the most important fae in some accounts, and it is the AOS space SI with an accent ones I mentioned earlier. And these ones are kind of confusing with the definitions and terms which are used with them because this one this one is one that overcompassly calls it she or Diana she which is like earlier I said was a term for the ones who stayed behind uh, and it's also with she as in just the tomb ones like earlier and this one I'm just gonna say is uh, I'm just gonna call it C for the SI with an accent at the end just to make it a little bit easier if I use the term for when I'm talking about it in the description um, they were also called the people of the mound um, they are also considered the highest of the truer Dodanan being the kings and queens of the Fae who come from Tirnanog, a mythical island west of Ireland uh, at least that was before they had to retreat to the other world after losing a war I mentioned earlier with the uh, Milanesian people. Uh, and the description it kind of resembles humans in size and a little bit of appearance, but they were a distinctly different race from humans, uh, rather tall, um, noble in appearance, stunningly beautiful, um, but on occasions they can be terrible and hideous, uh, kind of like goblin little creatures or just nasty little hags. Um, some accounts say that they were almost like transparent beings moving without noise and leaving no tracks where they went. Um, when they would encounter humans though, they were credited with protecting and healing them sometimes. Other times, uh, they would have taught them certain skills, uh, smithcraft, woodworking, other things like that. Uh, when they would appear, though, through either the tombs that were the portals or just in general, like, appearing behind you or teleporting kind of thing, because they were accounted with having that ability, there would be the... Ascent, well, it's a sound that was described as humming a thousand bees and a whirlwind of wind and leaves. So it, it kind of just like a tornado kind of whirls around them and then they appear. But when they aren't moving around or doing whatever they want out of their abodes, they are at homes that are called either fairy hills, fairy rings. Uh, sometimes they'll uh, pick out a particular tree, lock, or a forest area and stuff. And when they do that, they end up becoming fierce guardians, killing to protect their homes. And most times, though, if you don't mess with the homes or anything around them, they are generally peaceful and don't tend to cause harm. But if enraged, they will fight back. And most accounts say that uh, death is involved if you do encounter them after messing with their homes or places that they decide to live in. 
some stories say that they were notorious for also destroying wheat and uh, soiled milk. Uh, but Celtics would believe that if they set out milk or sugar, butter, that would appease them. And uh, there are some fae that are considered subcategories of these types, which are uh, the Banshee, the Beanshee. And the first one was spelled B-A-N-S-H-E-E. And then the other one is B-E-A-N space S-I-D-H-E. And then you had the Cat Sith, which is a fae cat creature. And then you had the Kusith, which is a fey dog kind of creature um and then the very known uh Leonin she which is the fey lover or fairy lover which we'll touch along that name a little bit later with one of the stories and then also their name has been uh, attributed to what are called the descendants of the true Dodonin and the people who settled in Ireland and so that was a couple of the fey creatures that prowl the night on Sawin. Uh, some of the reasons why the people wear costumes and masks was to kind of hide their appearances from these creatures because the fey kind of if they saw people dressed up in these animal costumes and other kind of things, they wouldn't particularly like go after them because they would think that these people were fey creatures because the fey, like I said, had humanoid appearances but had very distinctive characteristics that made them not human. Most of the time, they would have antlers, uh, fur that would be like on animals, other stuff, hooves, uh, be very animal characteristics mixed in with human characteristics, and sometimes even nature stuff. Like, sometimes they'll have flowers that grow from their hair. Uh, sometimes branches will be growing out of their hair, or a part of their body will be part wood, and stuff like that. And that's kind of where the custom of wearing those costumes was because if a druid priest, which was out at the night with these creatures being out, he thought if he wore this, he wouldn't be messed with because the fae typically didn't mess with other fae because of the kind of magical powers they all kind of possessed and the weird other realm that they came from. They mainly just focused on humans interacting with them messing with them and like i said earlier they can sometimes help people but most accounts it's something you want to stay away from unless if you have a way to appease them because if you try to use force against them usually it just ends up being worse in the end in most of the accounts and stories that i've come across and read but we'll get into some of the mythology stories that uh, surround the Samhain festivals and take place during the Samhain festivals with some of the mythologies taking place on the day of Samhain or around the time of the festivals or any of the festival of the de uh, Feast of the Dead type of nights. Some of these mythological stories I won't get into great detail. I picked out a couple that I fancied as really interesting and some other ones we might just touch on and then we will actually do full episodes on them later. Uh, one t character in particular that we will get into two of his stories today at least uh, and I might do a full episode on him later because there's just so much about them and that's uh, Fian. And we will get into his story a little bit later, but the first one I want to look into is the Battle of Moitara, which happened on Samhain. 
and was a pivotal moment in the Irish mythology. Um, this was a battle between the True Dodonan and a dark force called the Fomoranians, which is F-O-M-O-R-I-A-N-S, and these were personifications of chaos, darkness, death, blight, and drought. Um, it could be classified as this battle was the good versus evil since the true Dodonan were considered the uh, pantheon of the Irish gods and they were always considered in light, uh, bright beings, glowing. Uh, if you, anybody's familiar with the Olympian mythology, the Greek mythology, uh, you can think of this as like the Olympians versus the Titans. Um, and in this battle, they basically, the true Dodonan were able to push back the Formians in a little bit of capacity. There's some accounts that said that they basically just pushed them to a different part of the Ireland Isles or back to mainland Europe. Um, but again, this story is so big and uh, congruent that I want to take a whole episode on it. And like I said, this is just the second battle. So there is a first battle, and then there's a subsequent third battle with some of the characters that play a role in the second battle, but not the full cast and characters. And then another fourth battle, which had the True Dodonan fighting against the uh, ancestors of the Irish people that I mentioned earlier. But that'll be all that I want to really go on to with that story for right now. Uh, probably will have an episode on that completely later. And then the next mythological story that happened pertaining with Samhain was with the Nemid people that ran across the same Fomorian people from the last one. But their encounter didn't go so good. The Nemid people were forced to pay a tax of two-thirds of all wheat, butter, milk to these people, and the payment was due on every Samhain where they would go to the Tower of Connad on Tory Island, um, and this went on, it, it didn't really say how many years, but it just said that it went on until the Nemid people fled Ireland, so... It doesn't say what happened to him after that, and it, I couldn't really find any specific stories, just recounts on some uh, translations that they had in manuscripts, and it didn't really have any much other substance on what happened to these people, or if they fled to mainland Europe, or if they went south to Africa, or what happened to them after. They just kind of said this little footnote on this little encounter with the Nemid people and the Fomorians. Then the first story I will cover in great detail and tell the whole story of is the story of Sier Ibrimith, the goddess of dreams, and Angus McOrg, the god of love. One night, Angus dreamed of a beautiful and enchanting woman on the edge of a lake. But when he reached out and tried to grab her, he woke up, and this kept happening night after night and he fell for this woman immediately. For this mysterious woman, he had no name, but he asked around, and no one seemed to know her. After about a year of searching, he ended up going to his parents for help. Dagon, the chief god and god of life and death, and Bona, the goddess of the river Bone. 
Shortly after conferring with his parents, his father was able to find a friend of his that was a king, and he was able to find out who she was upon getting her description from Angus's father. And the king was able to also give her a name, and it was Sierra Ibrimeth. She was no ordinary woman. She was a part of the True Dodonna, a shapeshifter, but she only chose to, to transform into a swan along with her maidens. When Angus discovered her, she was standing by a lake, seen in his dreams, but also surrounded by 150 maidens all chained together with silver chains. Ciri promised to be Angus's bride, if he was willing to return next Salwyn and transform with her into a swan. So he went out to consult with his parents again, and after some thought, his father was able to come up with an idea to let him transform as well. So, next Salwyn, Angus returned to the lake and found the swan horde. He didn't delay to transform and find his love, and once he did, the two flew around the lake in three times and then flew towards Angus's palace to live in any form they wanted to. And that is the end of this story. And this story mainly relates to the Samhain mythology with connection to the goddess of dreams, Sieri, and with dreams being so closely related to death. And the swan form that she takes on is a creature that is commonly subservient to psychopomps which are grim reapers, ferrymen of the dead, uh, people associated with death, and then, I, as stated earlier, Dagonda is uh, prominently in the story as being the father character and the character of the god of life and death, and that is one of the main concepts connected to Samhain is death. And it, this story is commonly told around Samhain in the Celtic belief, uh, since it did happen on that day and happens to pertain with it. And um, one quick note about it before going on with the maidens, the 150 maidens. Um, the silver chains part is particularly interesting because it uh, determines whether what creatures they were basically. Because they weren't humanoid uh, since they had the ability to transform into swans obviously. Uh, but the silver chains or silver in particular is a common thing that fey are very harmed by or disliking of so it could have been bound in some way but it really didn't state why and the number of 150 i didn't find any relevance to pertaining to Salwin or anything like that uh but the number does pop up a couple other times in celtic mythology with just numbers of creatures being either attack or attacking someone but that is enough for this story, and I hope you like it. On to the next one. This is probably going to be the longest of the tales I will tell pertaining to Samhain, and it is the strange tale of Nero. On an ancient night of Samhain, a king called Alia, A-I-L-I-L-L, and Queen Mebed, M-E-D-B, gathered their household and warriors at Forth Rothkuthen to feast on this night. Then the king during the merriment practically dared the warriors to go out and place a willow branch under two fresh corpses who had been executed earlier that morning. 
At first, no one wanted to, for on, for on Samhain, even the dead could harm the living if they wanted to. But eventually, some took the challenge, but all came, f came back with fear struck in their eyes, for great was the darkness of that night and its horror. Finally, Nero went out. The king offered him his gold-hilted sword if he succeeded. But Nero, Nero was no fool. He donned a heavy suit of armor and set out to the house of tortures where the bodies were. He entered the house and once in, mysteriously his armor failed him and fell off three times. And after the third time of putting back his armor, a dead man chuckled saying, You need a proper nail to hold that on. So, without delay... Nero struck a nail through the armor and his own body, and then the dead spoke again, saying, My, how brave you are, Nero arrogantly agreed yes. But the dead man wasn't done egging him on. The dead requested, By the truth of thy valor, take me on thy neck, that I may get a drink with thee. I was very thirsty when I was hanged. Nero, not easily scared, replied, Come on my neck then, hither shall I carry thee. The dead man simply replied, The nearest house. So the two men, one dead and one alive, go to the house where it was surrounded by a lake of fire. So the dead said, Eh, why not try the next one? So on they go to the next house. And they came to this one, and it was surrounded with a lake of water. And Strangely, the dead man was fearful of this and said, To try the next one, shall we? And without delay, Nero went on to the third one. All seemed fine with this one, so they entered. The, ha the family seemed to sleep and saw a vat of water meant for bathing or washing. The dead man said, I will drink of that and, and began to drink. But on the last swig, he decided to gulp up the water, hold it in his mouth, and then spray it on the family, killing them all instantly. Nero, not phased at all, grabbed the dead man, and then they returned back to the gallows. And then, after that, Nero decided to head back to the royal fort. But on his way back, he ended up seeing it a light of blaze. And then when he got closer to the fort, he found it in a pile of ashes and an army strolling off in the distance into a mound, a she. And then he realized that the world he entered was the other world. Nira ended up going with the she warriors, and once they arrived, they presented to the king the heads of all the men that were slain at that fort, and that pleased the king. But one warrior asked, What shall be done to the man that came with? The king replied, Let him come hither that I might speak with him. And the king gave Nero specific instructions on what to do next, which was to go to a certain woman's house, stay there, and bring firewood to him every day so he was allowed to live. And so, when he arrived to the house, the woman greeted him kindly. And then, Nero ended up bringing the king firewood every day. Until one day he saw a blind man with a lame man on his back leaving the palace and climbing over a wall. Bemused, he decided to ask the woman about this. She said they were going to the king's crown, a golden diadem that he wore on his head, and was hidden behind the wall they climbed over. Puzzled, Nero asked why, 
and the woman explained, the king could only trust a man who could not see and a man who could not walk to visit his most cherished object. Neither could betray him. Then Nero wondered aloud about his fate. The woman who began to like Nero told him a secret. Two, in fact. The burnt fort he saw earlier was a prophetic vision of what will happen to his people and was possible to see since the time in this world flowed a little differently than it does in our world. And he could save his people if he warned them. The second secret was she was pregnant with his child. And then casually going on like she didn't just drop a bomb or anything, she said they are still around the same cauldron and the charge has not yet been removed from the fire. Tell them to be on their guard on the evening of Sawin coming and to destroy this she, which is the tomb that the group went out of. She wanted him to warn his people in time so she could escape with him and his son. And then so a year passed and the message was able to be received from the other side of his soldiers that he left. But King Alia on Sawin urged Nira and his family to remove themselves from the she so they aren't destroyed. And then Nira with other mythological Irish figures from mythology ended up coming together and we will cover their stories probably at a later date. Killed the king and then the she was unoccupied at the time. So Nira, his wife and child, decided to return to this un unoccupied she and they decided to stay there and live peacefully until the end of time. And so that ends the longer story that we have for this evening and we'll get into the next one. The next two short tales are going to be of Fionn McComholland. And to give a little bit detail on him before we get into his stories. Fionn's father had kidnapped his mother when her father had refused to let him marry her. So High King ruled him as an outlaw. So Fionn had to grow up in the life of a mercenary outside of the normal Celtic social order. Later in life, he was tutored by a man named Figgis. And the story of the Salmon of Knowledge starts after he meets Figgis. But that is a tale for another day. Other stories of him are the Giant's Causeway, Fion and Sabata, which was his wife, uh, and many more, eventually becoming one of the greatest heroes in Celtic mythology. But for today, we're going to talk about one of Fionn McCohan's stories relating to the Samhain Festival. And the first one is listed as being in the Fenanian cycle and is listed as happening in his youth. So, one day, aggressive Truidanan from the other world, a land in there called Megmal, his name was Alan McDiganon, a fire-breathing goblin and sometimes called the Burner. On every Samhain, he would arrive to the Hill of Terra, the seat of the Ireland's High King at the time, and brought terror to this sacred location for 23 years after. And each year he would arrive, he would play an Irish harp, which was a spell to cause all in the immediate area to fall asleep. Then, while they were asleep, he would burn 
down the grand hall and all the other structures, killing many there. After he was delighted with his carnage, he would return to his fairy mound at the she Fincolic. No one could kill him, since everyone who got close would fall under the sleeping spell, and this continued until Fionn learned of this. Fionn McCullen would be, at the time, a chieftain of the Bishkin clan, and a few months prior to this event, he would also become a Fen warrior, and he had already obtained all the knowledge of the world from the story, The Salmon of Knowledge, as mentioned earlier. So, he made a request to the High King for what he would get for defeating this fire-breathing goblin. Fionn wanted to lead the Fionnian troops, which was a band of warriors and the king's guards. And since no man was able to beat him, the king reluctantly agreed to the young hero's request. Fionn might be a great warrior, but he was not immune to this spell. And in the legends, there is two different versions of how he was able to get past the sleeping spell. The first way, basically something like smelling salts. He borrowed a spear from a, another Irish hero that was there at the time, and the spear was laced with a certain poison. And when Fionn arrived to the hill, he would inhale the magical fumes coming off of the spear and cause him to become immune to the spell. I think it probably just woke him up a little bit. Uh, the second way was to heat up the tip of his spear, and when he was about to fall asleep, hold it to his head to wake up. Either way, he escaped the effects of the sleeping spell and was able to hide away till the beast was able to get within striking range and he was able to deal the final death blow to him with his spear and impaling the creature with a mortal wound as it fled back to its mound. But in the legend, it said it didn't make it back home. It died before it was able to enter the portal back to its realm. And that ends the first story of Fionn McCon. And the next story of Fionn is him fighting with a supernatural creature on Samhain again. So in this short, short story, it's not much really in detail. But I still wanted to share it since it was a Samhain mythology. The short story starts with Fionn's study in poetry with a character by the name of Sathrin, the son of Fintan. During the visit to his friend during this Samhain, his friend was drawn to the, a particular she mound where Fay Elia lived. Fay Elia was one of the most beautiful of all the Fay, but was unimpressed with all the suitors who came to court her for marriage. All the men who had tried to court her had lost their lives in trying to and failing to win her over. And this happened every Samhain. And this year, Fionn's friend fell victim to her. And before he could make it to help him, they had both disappeared to the other realm. So, next Samhain, Fionn decided to hide out in a nearby valley near her mound. Then, in the darkness and quiet of the night, he saw the mound aglow with fire light emanating from his doorway. 
He confronted the Fae and was hard fought against it, nearly losing his life. But was able to luckily land a good spear throw and kill her and avenge his fallen friend and all those who had lost their lives to this particular Fae. It is also stated that with his stunning fighting skills and strategy, he won the respect of the other Fae on this night. And with this story's end, this also ends the segment regarding the Sawin mythology and concepts surrounding the mythologies and beliefs that they held. And furthermore, another note, uh, the mythologies I talked about are transcribed from what the monks did and some of it could be changed, altered, and there could be multiple different versions. I just went with what seemed like the most common and if I saw multiple versions of something pop up in multiple different tellings, I decided to include them. But for the most part, I just went with the stories that I seemed to pop up the most times and kind of gave them my own telling of them. Uh, some quotes were involved in them. Uh, but other than that, if you have a different version of the tale, then feel free to send it in. Uh, but before we get on to our last segment and the Mythological Minute, I just want to go th and put on to this poll that will be on for this week's episode. Um, and it is, um, what do you think of the uh, Samhain being the origins for Halloween? Uh, and the options will be yes, Samhain was definitely a inspiration for the origins of Halloween. Uh, no, I don't see how this has correlations to modern day practices. And then maybe some stuff seems to have transferred uh, over. Uh, and then other can be your response, anything you deem uh, acceptable for your response or anything you want to add or possibly say in regards to Samhain or the Halloween festival. So on to the next segment where I go over my thoughts. So, before we get into the Mythological Minute in this last little campfire segment, I want to go over my thoughts in regards to Solomon. Uh, I think the uh, origins of our modern day uh, Halloween do take a huge inspiration from Solomon. Uh, from the concepts of the Fae, I can kind of see where you can make correlations to our modern day monsters, uh, spooks, and how we like to be kind of have that horror aspect to this time of year because the Celts definitely had that in regards to the Fae being terrifying creatures and with some of like the modern uh, Halloween uh, folklore in regards to like witches, uh, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, uh, and that kind of stuff, you can see where Fae influences have been a part about that. Um, and especially, like I mentioned earlier, with the Dullahan and the Headless Horseman uh, folklore that cropped up in the Americas, that you could definitely see the strongest correlation between the Fae's ancient lore and the modern-day tellings of the Headless Horseman tales or the Ichabon Crane stories that Disney had portrayed uh, in the 1940s. And then you also had some of the other legends and mythologies correlating with the uh, adventures of uh, Nera going from house to house and stuff like that. It kind of has a certain semblance of the trick-or-treating aspect, which I kind of thought was funny finding that in the Celtic mythology because I wasn't expecting to see something like that where they go house to house on a Samhain Halloween night. Uh, but it was definitely a correlation that I came across in my head real fast. Uh, 
but other than the phase and the mythology that's practiced around this time, you can see correlations with the moon and the time of year being uh, the holiday practice on the same year, same time of year every year. Uh, and a lot of people don't take correlations to the solstice or equinoxes anymore. Really, they just go by off dates. But the equinoxes and all that still play a factor on the celebration of our holidays, even if we don't take notice of them particularly. And you can also see reference of these fake creatures in a lot of the um, media and movies of horror genres around this time of year and various other things. And then uh, I also touched on the uh, lanterns that were used during the Samhain festivals. Uh, they weren't called jack-o'-lanterns. I just kind of used that term to make it easier for um, people to correlate what I was uh, reading from. Because in the stories and some of the concepts that I saw or read of, uh, they had lanterns that were basically carved in square type of shapes, but, or they were just carved like little holes in either side just to stick a candle in or a little flame. And it would be very basic, not much design to them. And then later on, you had the uh, Stingy Jack uh, folklore with uh, him being cursed to walk the earth forever for making a deal with the devil and then not being allowed to go to heaven. Uh, and for all eternity he's forced to walk the earth and the devil ends up taking pity on him and giving him a piece of coal to light his path uh so singy jack carves a face out of a jack-o'-lantern and puts the uh coal in there and lights his path with that and that's kind of where you get the modern day jack-o'-lantern type of thing uh so you kind of see where it kind of traces back to Samhain because if they never used the practice in the beginning for a gourd lantern type of object, I don't think you would have the Stingy Jack folklore that kind of persists to our modern day jack-o'-lanterns. But you can think what you want, or you can think, or you can take other inspirations from other holidays that were also celebrated around the world that also use a similar concept. Maybe not a gourd, but other kind of lanterns to light the way for the dead and other such practices. And then uh, I'm going to touch on to the costumes pertaining to what the druid priest would wear. Uh, you can I can say that there is a correlation between the costumes nowadays uh, and to the costumes that people used to wear during the Samhain festivals, but really it was more to ward off evil and stuff like that. Nowadays we use it more as a fun gag party thing, uh, but the with adults at least you dress up as something that fears you or scares others and that was a concept that the druid priest basically used for the costumes was to keep the fey away by looking like something scary or foreign or weird or mutated or changed basically so i can kind of see with some of the traditions of wearing a costume and wanting to conquer one's fear maybe come from correlating back to Sawin and the Druid Priest, but it's it definitely a thin correlation, but I could definitely see it in there, and there are some definite, definite aspects that I didn't go over because I wanted to focus mainly on Sawin, but there are definitely other ways and pathways and research that you can go down to to connect both the jack lanterns and Halloween costumes and the uh, trick-or-treating thing, too, with going on costumes, too, a little bit. You don't really see any traces of the trick-or-treat type of thing in the Celtic mythologies, except for, like I mentioned, in um, 
Nero's tail where they go to three houses with the dead man on his back. That you can kind of see as funny correlation to Halloween, but I wouldn't, or trick-or-treating at least. Um, but the first inference of trick-or-treating would be guising, and that was during the Middle Ages. And you could say that kind of came from the lack of Samhain Festival, possibly. But that it would be a topic in and of its own, possibly for another Halloween evening. Because, uh, like I said, I just focused on the Samhain part of Halloween because I wanted to definitely do a deep dive onto some of the precursor of the Halloween mythology stories uh, that relate to it and some of the fake creatures because mythology is definitely a huge interest of mine and it seemed like the perfect thing to do for a second episode going over some of the Halloween shenanigans and stuff but and to get to our modern day Halloween from the old Samhain you definitely have to take a look at it over centuries and over the course of being ruled by multiple different people after the Celts and how the mythology just kind of warped and changed after generations of being melted with other things or just being celebrated alongside other holidays like I mentioned with the Pomodia festival and the Philesius festival that the Romans had and then you had the All Souls Day and the All Saints Day and then you had a couple other holidays that were mixed into with the uh, English and some of the uh, Nordic people and some of the dramatic people religions kind of melded together holidays festivals kind of all melded and mashed together and you could still see some forms like I mentioned earlier of Samhain being practiced in some capacity during the Middle Ages with the bonfires in the small communities so you can see that it was still trying to persist a little bit and I think that's another reason why I could see a big correlation to Samhain and some of the other Halloween practices because it was still kind of, I wouldn't say fresh, but it was not too far removed to where it would be ancient customs or something like that. It was something that was carried on to the modern day. And there are some places that still do bonfires around this time of year for the Halloween festival. The Jack Leonard, of course, like I just said, it's still persistent today. Costume wearing. Uh, being out on this night, having terrible legends of night creatures like the black-eyed kids coming out on Halloween, that kind of stuff, uh, weird spooky things happening on Halloween, uh, full moon nights with Halloween. Uh, so you have all that kind of stuff that persists over time and morph and create our mythologies today in regards to Halloween. So that should about finish up this trail for tonight. And on the way back to the she, as we return you guys back to your realm, we will go over the mythological minute in just a moment. And so, let's get into the mythological minute of this trail. It is tied in to the Fae, as we discussed earlier, so I decided to continue with the Irish mythology theme for this episode. And this is sometimes, sometimes subcategorized as the she, but in almost all accounts is given the name Changeling. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it's a classic creature in mythology and probably familiar to most people. Uh, if you're familiar with a show called Supernatural, it is featured on episode two, season three, where they encounter a group of changelings, uh, but that is far from what the mythology actually is. 
These creatures aren't exactly harmful, uh, but are extremely terrifying from the viewpoint of a parent. A changeling is an ill-tempered and look wizened and wrinkled beyond their years and are supposed to resemble babies or young children. They grow and develop a lot quicker than humans though. The babies within a few weeks have a full set of teeth and their legs and arms will be very bony and thin. When a changeling is found it's usually swapped for a baby and sometimes the human baby is taken but only a log or a bundle of sticks is left in place and they are enchanted. The Vape parents usually do this and there are a lot of reasons on why they do this. Um, the Fae are known to envy human babies happiness, healthiness, uh, the sturdy bodies they come with, or that the baby isn't loved enough by the parents or sometimes just out of spite or of malice. And then there are some accounts to say that they want to breed with the humans to strengthen their bloodlines so that they don't have such weak and frail bodies. The people of the Fae particularly like to take certain types of people. And when regards to children or the young, they might take a handsome boy to later become a lover of a female fae or a healthy baby since most of the time fae children that are born of fae are born deformed if at all because most times the pregnancies are not carried to full term in the mythologies. But when an adult is swapped out for a changeling it is usually for a midwife or a new mother since they are favored by the Fae Queen to be servants or to tend to Fae children since they are easily able to tend to children being new mothers. And also families that have had children swapped with changelings will have misfortune or ill luck since it is said that the changeling will drain the parents or family that it's with of its luck and good fortune. Some stories have the children swapped with the changeling return home after several years and are seen as changed by being in the fey realm and those changes could include a mastery of certain knowledge mainly herbs or uh, magical knowledge or other gifts as certain people dubbed them uh, but mainly they were just looked as as different than normal humans after coming back some ways to keep them away from you or your children was fire. Fae of this kind feared fire and feared the repercussions of being burnt. And as said earlier in some stories, the Fae have the power of breathing fire, but with the changeling specific type of Fae creature, they are very vulnerable to fire and being burnt. Uh, they can't touch iron, so in the mythologies and folklore people would put iron on their cribs or make iron completely out of the cribs or at least cover certain uh, parts of the crib in iron so that when the fae tried to come over and swap the children they couldn't actually touch the crib to grab the children and in some accounts which aren't I don't know how they thought this was a good idea, but they would tie strings of iron chains 
around the baby's necks at night to ensure that they couldn't be touched at all by the fae. Not really a good idea. Chain around baby's neck doesn't sound really good at all. But if your child is taken by the fae, you shouldn't mistreat the changeling that is left or abandon it since the fae were said to do worse to your child if you did that to theirs. If you loved and cared for the changeling though, there would be a possibility that you could get your child back. Some ways to get your child back from the Fae are several times of the year when the Fae leave their home, you can steal back your child. And to do that, you needed certain specific rites and rituals that could be performed by a druid priest and get them back. And then the last way to get them back particularly was to trick the changeling itself. And what the folklore says to do was to pretend to prepare an entire meal within an empty eggshell. This would cause the changeling to say one of these two things. <clears throat> Acorn before oak I knew, an egg before a hen. Never one's hen eggshell stew enough for harvest men? Or, long have I lived and much have I seen. I have seen the rolled forest burn down and seven times grow up again. But never have I seen anyone brewing in an egg. And then the mother must threaten punishment for not being able to accomplish this task. And this will cause the Fae to disappear and return your child later. And with that, I would like to read a little poem that usually is a focal point regarding the changeling folklore in Irish mythology and pardon any stumbling in the poetry it might not be as fluid I just thought it was a nice little addition that I found to go along with the changeling and it wasn't a long story it was just kind of something short to read so here we go the summer sun was sinking with a mild light calm and mellow and shone on my little boy's bony cheeks and his loose locks of yellow. The robin was singing sweetly, and his song was sad and tender, and my little boy's eyes, as he heard the song, smiled with sweet, soft splendor. My little boy lay on my bosom, while his soul the song was quaffing. The joy of his soul had tinged his cheek, and his heart and his eye were laughing. I sat alone in my cottage, the midnight needle plying. I feared for my child, for the rush's light in the socket now was dying. There came a hand to my lonely latch. Like the wind at midnight morning, I knew to pray, but rose again, for I heard my little boy groaning. I crossed my brow, I crossed my breast, but that night my child departed. They left a weakling in his stead. I am broken hearted. Oh, it can't be my own sweet boy, for his eyes are dim and hollow. My little boy is gone to God, and his mother soon will follow. The dryer for the 
dead will sung for me. The mass be charred sweetly. I will sleep with my little boy in the moonlight churchyard meetly. And with that, that will finish up the mythological minute on changelings. I hope you enjoyed, and we will get into the outro. And so with that, we reached the she again, and you can go back to the realm that you once came from. And I will return back to the other realm with the fae and other creatures for the rest of Samhain. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, and any other credits will be linked below. Any music credits will also be down below as well. The website link will be down below too. Uh, if there's anything you want to find or anything pertaining to the episode, uh, Southern Love can be found on the Facebook page, which is the Great Journey Podcast. And I hope you like tonight's trail. And I will continue to stoke the fire until you guys decide to join me back here for another trail. And I have been your druid for tonight, Luke Keish. All credits for the music research that I uh, found will be in the uh, description below. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook. Uh, I don't really do much on there except for posts when the episodes come out. Uh, the polls are usually up on Facebook as well. Uh, they usually come out the same day as the episode. And so, I hope you enjoyed and join me back here in the dark woods for the Great Journey Podcast. Catch up from the mighty high. Ain't no one left for the good to go. No truth in a world full of lies. I run for a given fed of throws from and stumble around. Gather all the greed to go back to their home ground. Wash your hands of all the blood, beg, borrow, and stole to keep a good man down. Shake the hands of Holy Ghost. Long and every coast, share your flesh with passing shadows on a bed of broken hopes. Be sure to breathe in deeply every bit of sin that your lungs can hold. Welcome all your past reactions back home. What do we cry, cry? Satan saints to the blood in the same God's holy name. We were the heathens to their saints, feeling blood in the same God's holy name. Shake the hands of Holy Ghost, dance along in every coast. Share your flesh with passing shadows on a bed of broken hopes. Be sure to breathe in deeply every bit of sin that your lungs can hold. Welcome all your bastard actions back home.